We have been back to the Red Letter Study. And yesterday, we went through the, um, the Lord's Prayer, right in the center of the Sermon on the Mount. And um, every time I go through the Lord's Prayer, it's like I want to stop and take a breath and kind of regather because some things in life are just too big to be grasped all at once. You know that? Some things are just too big. You can't get the lay of the land. You can't get everything. You know? It's like, it's wonderful to watch this young family, but, you know, back in our 30s, we didn't have the perspective to be able to see certain things that are more apparent the older we get. You know, like those Nazca lines down in Peru? Are you familiar with those? Yeah? You know, petroglyphs that are something like, I don't know, a couple thousand years old by this, this time. And people were walking around those things for centuries and just saw lines, but they didn't understand because until we could get off the ground and look at it from the air and realize that these geoglyphs are amazing. And what in the world were they made for when you couldn't really see them from the ground? But that's the, the thing that's going on here. Some things are just too big to be able to be seen all at once. And this is what we're dealing with. Things that are coming from such an alien point of view that contradict our worldview are really asking too much of us all at once. We poor humans, we fragile creatures running around under a death sentence trying to make sense of life. And then this teaching comes, this person comes, this relationship comes, and it's just too big. It, it, it takes us by surprise. We, we can't understand it. It's intriguing. We want what maybe it seems to offer. And maybe our minds get a grasp of the concept, but it just can't yet take hold. This is what we're dealing with when we're dealing with Jesus' kingdom. This is what we're dealing with when we're dealing with Jesus' view of his Father's love. It is just too big. We can understand the words we can understand the words that, that I am saying, that, that you have heard before time and time again, but not the reality that the words are trying to convey. That is just too big. This is why the only way to know God and to know God's love is to act like God. And does that sound presumptuous to you? What we're talking about here is to live and love the way Jesus lived and loved. Because Jesus was one with the Father. Jesus was identical too. Jesus was showing us the Father in human form. Can we emulate that? Can we start to act that way? Because until we do, until we experience even the possibility of the reality of this alien love that is coming to us, we're never, ever going to understand how radical it is. We'll never be convinced of its reality. Now, I use some words here. Possibility. Alien. And I use those deliberately. I use them on purpose. I hope they sound strange to you. I hope they're even a bit uncomfortable to you. Alien love? What are we talking about here, Right? But something that comes so far out of our experience is the definition of alien, right? And until those words are strange enough and uncomfortable enough 
and unfamiliar enough to show us that they are coming from something out of our ken, out of our understanding. They're never going to have the power to point where we need to go. This is the problem. If our concept of God's love is familiar, then it's not going far enough. It is not taking us off the spot. Because God's love is so big, so radical, it changes everything. And so I'm hoping to use some words that can tweak a little bit. Because even after you understand the words, <laughs> even after you're saying to yourself, I want to believe, you know, like Fox Mulder, I want to believe, we're going to keep running back to the safety of our old ideas, our old worldview, our old legalistic mindset. It's ironic, if you think about it, that law and the fear of punishment is comforting to us. But you know what? It really is. Because it's what we know. It's the way the world works. The world is all pay to play, let's face it. Performance for whatever we get. Toe the line or face the consequences. That's the way the world works. That's the way our churches have mirrored the world. That's the way our churches have worked. It's what we know. And it's what we can feel some control with, as we've said before. If we know what this line is, if we know what this rule is, if we know what this formula is, and we can just keep it, then we can control the outcome. It's contractual spirituality. I do this, God is obligated to do that. That feels like some control. Not only that, it's what most others believe anyway, and there's safety in numbers, right? And so we're going to keep running back to what feels more comfortable, even if it was restricting, even if it was dysfunctional. We do this all the time. I had a friend I told you about a few weeks ago, been at the effect for years. He's moved away, but we get together for coffee every once in a while. And he's gone through this process. I've watched him go through this process for years. And yet he still came back wanting to talk again about Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth and, and, and the, uh, what's the third one? Life. life. Way, the life and the truth. Truth, life. Yeah. And no one comes to me but the Father. And, and he was saying, hey, you know, what about that? And, you know, it's like, really? We're going back over this again? I didn't say that. But this is what we do. I had another friend come to me about the, the wages of sin or death. And what is this about sin? How are we supposed to understand that? Another person who's been through so much of his spiritual walk, still trying to figure out, how does this all work? Because here's the reality. We get scared. Life scares us. Listen to the prayer requests we just had this morning. Stuff like this happens. Life happens. And it scares us. And it makes us feel insecure. Like that image of the child at the beach that I always use, who runs from his mother's lap on the dry sand to out into the surf, only while the surf is out. And when the surf starts coming back again, gets scared and runs back to his mom's lap again. That was the image I had for myself trying to go through the same thing. I'd run out, all excited. Freedom! You know, of being able to be out in the surf and be out in this, this new countryside. And then things start looking a little rocky. And then I want to run back to my books, run back to the comfort of what I knew before. Because this is just getting all too much. Because we'll end up wondering if we got it right. We're going to go right back to that legal mindset. 
Am I doing it right? Will God approve me if I think this way, if I go this direction? Do I really have permission to be this radical? It's funny because we can understand crime and punishment because that's the way the world works. We can also understand love with condition. But we can't understand. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we don't even respect a love that is completely indiscriminate, that just rains down on everything and everyone, the just and the unjust, that is completely degreeless, that is just always on 100%. That just doesn't seem right to us. Now, I'm not trying to put a stigma on these two friends of mine or anybody else who has had these kinds of doubts and these kinds of oscillation. Because if you're really serious about tackling this spirituality, if you're really serious about following Jesus, serious about trying to plumb the depths of what he is trying to get across to us, then you are moving into a place of doubt. You're moving way outside of human experience. Actually, the doubt is the sign that you are taking your faith seriously. Do you ever think of it that way? If you haven't doubted ever, then when have you ever stepped out of the boat? When have you ever gone beyond what you think you already know, what is familiar? These are the people that I respect the most, the ones that are struggling, the ones that are doubting because they're working through it. This is what we all need to do. Jesus is showing us this is the struggle. This is the way it works. You'll be working against your own nature. You'll be swimming upstream against your culture. All these things are going to be happening. And so when we do this, when we run back, we're going to make sin a primary concern, as if just wiping the sin away is what we need to do in order for God to love us again, to accept us. And so repentance becomes the big issue. And it's not that we don't need to repent. We absolutely do need to repent. We do need to change directions. The, the way that our minds think, our worldview, all that needs to change. But it's not to make God love us. That's not why we repent. It's not to make God approve of us. We repent in order to see the truth. What truth? That God already does love us with a love that cannot be changed in any way. I so wish that I could just download this to you, you know? I, there's that great scene in The Matrix. Do you know how to fly an air, uh, a helicopter? Well, not yet. Okay, let's go. Don't you wish you could just do that? Just download this. I know jujitsu. I can fly a helicopter. I can actually live in the reality of God's love. I wish that I could download this to you. Truth is, it took me a decade of banging through this before I started to feel the first inklings of what it meant and how and feel the effect of what that meant. So I guess what I'm saying is I'm not going to be too much good for you. Right? You just have to steep in it and steep in it long enough. And it's, each one of us is going to be different. How many hours a day do you want to steep in this? Then you'll get it faster. How many hours a day do you want to practice? You'll get it faster. That's the way this works. But there is no substitute for this. This is why understanding the Lord's Prayer, as we were talking about last week, as a process, not as a written prayer, not as a set of words for us to recite, as if they had any power in and of themselves, just as 
a set of words. But to see the Lord's Prayer as this process, as this way of living, to experience this degreeless love that Jesus is trying to get across to us is so critical, absolutely critical. We must have a way of allowing ourselves to let go of the formulaic and ritualistic, legal and obligatory ways of coming at God so that we can be transformed from the inside out by the experience of God's love. Even as we continue to use ritual and use law to set the standard, to set the structure, to set the discipline that is absolutely needed in any spiritual formation, we still need all that. But again, only as pointers to the truth, not as the truth itself. That's the distinction that needs to be made. And of course, this is a non-dual approach, right? It's not either or, it's both and. We will use ritual, we will use practice, we will use law to funnel us and point us into the experience of this degreeless love. If we can keep in mind that these are tools and not absolutes in and of themselves. Now, we can move forward then with prayer, the Lord's Prayer, other prayers, as both the ritual reminder and the wordless expression of letting go of all our preconceptions as the only way to see the oneness, the love that really is underneath the structure of everything that we see. Because God's love is too big to grasp mentally. We just can't do it. It doesn't make sense. Even as we understand the concept, it still is going to elude us. It can only be known, I guess is the word I can use, when we're in the flow of it without thinking about it. We're just present to the flow because as soon as we start thinking about it, it becomes limited again by what our minds can conceive. Frank Herbert had a perfect way of putting this in Dune, the, the novel Dune. It made it into the movie as well. He said, a process cannot be understood by stopping it. It can only be understood by being present and part of the flow. We need to join and flow with the process if we are going to understand it. God's love is a flow. It is always moving. That's why spirit, ruach, all means breath and wind and spirit at the same time, all defined by movement. There has to be a flow. And if we're not part of the flow, then we're not part of the love either. We're thinking about it, but we're not part of it. So Jesus' style of prayer and Jesus' style of action in his life is what is set for us to accomplish this realization over time, not all at once, but over time, as we come back to it again and again. Think of the, the stories that Jesus tells us about farmers coming back to the field over and over again, patiently, invisibly to the rest of the world, just showing up to the process over and over, that the process is actually taking place, the miracle is taking place while they're sleeping. They don't have anything to do with it. They don't even know how it works. They put in the seed, they water it, they pull the weeds, they go to sleep, they come up and here's this head of grain shooting up. How did that happen? It's predictable because they created the right conditions. They kept showing up to the process, but they didn't make it happen. It's already there. 
He's trying to get this across to us. What is the nature of this coming to the Father? And how is it different from everything else that we do? It's a lot of work to let go. You would think it would be the easiest thing in the world, let go. But the resistance to that letting go, the resistance to letting go the illusion of any control is so huge in us because of our fear that it's a lot of work to tear down everything that you've built, everything that you've amassed in your life that gives you a sense of security. And yet, that is the only way, again, the paradox, to be able to experience the perfect love that casts out the fear. That's why faith stands right in between, because faith is the ability to act in the presence of doubt, the presence of uncertainty. Without that step, we can never bridge the gap from our fear to the experience that will take away the fear. Otherwise, we're in a total catch-22, right? But faith breaks the catch. Faith bridges that gap. That's it. And let's face it, the onus is on us. All the responsibility lies with us. We're always praying to God to do this and to do that. It's the truth of the matter. God has already done everything that he can possibly do for us. He's already chosen for us in our favor. He's already created everything the way it is so that we can accomplish what we need to accomplish. There's nothing left for him to do. The table is set. The feast is steaming. All we have to do is take and eat. But we keep praying for food. We keep praying for provision. There is nothing left for God to do. The onus is now on us. Everything we need is available. What did Jesus say? The waiting is over. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. Repent. Follow the gospel. Trust this good news of this kind of love. Mark 1.15. That's what he's telling us. Everything is done. All you have to do is respond. Now, all that to try to even set the table of the enormity of what it is that we're trying to accomplish here when we're trying to follow Jesus. Jesus is giving us something so big. It's going to take the better part of a lifetime to move toward it, to experience it, to trust it become convinced, and then to move with any kind of power and grace. But that's the beauty of our lives. That's what they're all about. And maybe nowhere is this concept more confusing than it is with forgiveness. Forgiveness, right? A four-letter word to many of us, forgiveness. I remember uh, counseling uh, someone, it was a, a, a man, you know, but he was he was there because he was having trouble in his relationship, and we're going round and round, and he's got this, and then, he, and finally, he just says, "Shouldn't she have to apologize first? <laughs> Forgiveness, right? Four-letter word. But that's the way we all feel. The, you know, the ancient Jews actually codified that attitude in the Talmud, where they said that you know, unless there is an apology, unless there is amends, unless there is restitution, unless the aggrieving party, the perpetrator, has made things right, you do not, not only don't need to forgive them, but you cannot and should not forgive them. The way they put it was, you keep the serpent in your heart. How about that, huh? Hold on to that hatred. Hold on to that. Remember, we're talking about an honor-shame society here, though, right? So it all fits in. They 
dishonored you, and there is no way that you're going to show them honor back until they have restored your honor. So that's the culture. That's the mindset, right? And so this is what we're wor- working against. It's legalistic thinking, legal thinking, contractual thinking, and we all do it. One is right, so the other has to be wrong. Hold on to that hurt. Hold on to that victimhood. Hold on to that grudge. Maybe not even consciously, but it's what we're doing until we get permission to start to let go, which we normally think comes in the form of an apology. We're looking at life as a zero-sum game, if you want to think of it that way. Right? If somebody wins, somebody else has to lose. That all the gains and wins and the losses, they all come to a zero sum. They all cancel each other out. And in a world of limited resources, this is the way it works. We can only get something if it comes from someplace else. But guess what? God doesn't live in a finite world. His resources are infinite. Always an endless showering of resources. There's no zero sum when it comes to God. And so when we're approaching God, we're approaching his love, we're moving out of the world that we know and understand into something completely different. Because instead of zero sum game, God's game, God's game is if somebody loses, then nobody wins. If anyone loses, nobody wins. This fits into the idea of shalom, which we translate as peace, but what it really means is the greatest amount of healing and health and connection and relationship and prosperity that is possible in a person, in a community. From the perspective of shalom, kind of like John Donne, you know, every death diminishes me, that idea, we can't get away from the losses because they are as if they were our losses as well. When we are really one with everyone, we don't win at someone else's expense. Everyone wins when there are infinite resources if they wish to. But we take this zero-sum idea that's obvious to us because of the way our world works and we extend it to forgiveness so that if someone's wronged us, then it's got to be made right. There's that zero sum, right? There's that dualistic thinking. Now, Jesus is working against this mindset as hard as he possibly can. But again, this is Jesus we're talking about, so he's doing it in a very strange and uncomfortable way as usual. So in the Lord's Prayer, if you want to take a look at your inserts, you know, just look at that middle line of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, in Luke's gospel, it's transgressions. But to the Hebrew mind, anything that unbalanced a system or unbalanced a relationship um, required forgiveness, required a restoration to the equilibrium that existed before. So if you have a relationship that is a pure relationship and then someone borrows money from the other, Now you have a creditor and a debtor and you have an imbalance. If someone has wronged another person, you've got a perpetrator and a victim and you have an imbalance. If you're ill, if if you uh, have uh, crops that you lost, imbalance in the system, and that requires restoration, that requires forgiveness. And of course, they looked at that as a judgment from God, which further complicates things. But this is the idea here. So as Jesus is saying this line in the Lord's Prayer, it seems to be that he's showing us a one-to-one correspondence from forgiving to being forgiven. 
Forgive our debts just as we have forgiven our debtors, as we have also forgiven our debtors, as if the two need to work together. Do you see that? Now, if that's not perfectly clear, he's going to elaborate and expand right after the prayer. And let's read this, starting at verse 14. For if you, that for that connects it to the previous, right? For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your heavenly Father will not forgive your transgressions. Ooh. What just happened there? Did love become conditional again? Did forgiveness become conditional again? Did the last 20 minutes of everything I'm, I said go right out the window in, in two lines? You know, Look at the choice of words that he has there. It's deliberate. It's strange. It's uncomfortable. And it, we have to ask the question, what happened to this degreeless, indiscriminate love? Now, let's make it even more confusing, shall we? Continue uh, Matthew 18 now, starting at verse 21. This is where Peter comes to him and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Seems like a weird number for him to just throw out, right? Jesus says to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 77 times. Okay, so what is going on here? It's quite possible that Peter is asking him about forgiveness and using the number seven as an allusion to the book of Genesis. Now, Cain, you all remember Abel and Cain, Cain and Abel? So Cain kills Abel, and he is ousted from the garden, or ousted from his parents' family. They're all out of the garden by this time. And he is, he is exiled. But he complains to God and says, hey, you know, if anyone sees me, they're going to kill me. And he says, no, I'm going to put a mark on you. Anybody who harms you in any way will be avenged seven times, sevenfold. And then Cain's great, 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 great grandson, Lamech, he is also a, a piece of work. He kills a man for some small indiscretion, and then he boasts to his wives at what he did and says, if my great, 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 great grandfather was going to be avenged seven times, I will be avenged 77 times. And so this is in their consciousness about uh, avenging, again, honor, shame, society, right? So Peter's probably thinking, if there is seven times avengement, is there also seven times forgiveness, you know? or 77 times? Well, Jesus says, no, I'm not telling you that. Not your experience, not what's familiar to you, but I'm saying 70 times seven times. Okay, so is that 490? Is that what Jesus is saying? You get 490 bites at the apple, and after that you're done. Remember that numbers are really important to the Hebrew mindset. You know, not only the letters that have meanings and the words have meanings, but also numbers have meanings, and the number of seven is perfection. Spiritual perfection, completion, fullness, wholeness. What Jesus is saying is basically perfection times perfection times ten, which can be mean an eternity. He's basically saying, no, you're going to be forgiving forever in a day. You're going to be forgiving an unlimited number of times. That's what this is all about. That makes perfect sense and seems very, very you know, consistent with all of Jesus' teaching on love, right? Okay, we can take a breath. But he ain't done yet. Here's the problem. Continue reading. Verse 23, for this reason, all right, for this reason, for what he just said, 
up to 70 times, seven times, an unlimited number of times you're supposed to forgive. But for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, the one who owed him 10,000 talents, millions of dollars, something that could never be repaid back, an, an outrageous and crazy amount of money, right? This was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. This is what the culture you know, uh, mandated. If you couldn't pay your debt, you were sold into indentured servitude or slavery until you could repay it all. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt, huge debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, small amount of money. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Oh, it's just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. So what is going on here? Is forgiveness conditional or not? Does God love us no matter what indiscriminately or is he waiting for us to perform whatever it is we need to perform in order to have his blessings and approval and his love? How do we harmonize these statements right here just on this one page? Not only among themselves but within the context of all of Jesus' life and all of Jesus' teaching. Is it like we imagine one has to be right and the others have to be wrong? That's dualistic thinking. See, for Jesus, it's unitive thinking. For Jesus, it's bringing those extremes into a balanced middle. It's staying in the presence of the paradox until the paradox teaches us. Because for Jesus, both are right at the same time. Forgiveness is unconditional. But still, we must forgive others at the same time, both together. How in the world is this possible? can be a few steps to get there, but first in the Aramaic, we need to understand what they understood about forgiveness. In Aramaic, forgiveness is the word sebak, and freedom is the word subkana. Both of those words share the same root word, right? So what does that tell you? That tells you that in the Hebrew mind, even though there is a nuance between forgiveness and freedom, they both relate to the same root word. Therefore, ultimately, they are the same. Freedom is forgiveness, and forgiveness is freedom. To be forgiven is to be set free. To be set free is to be forgiven, allowed to return to the state that you were before whatever happened to get you out of balance. If you were in prison, you were set free. If you are ill, you are healed. If you're in debt, you're repaid. All of those things 
are about freedom, the freedom to return where we were before whatever happened, happened. In the Semitic mind, forgiveness is the release, the ability to move and restore back to the original state, whatever it happened to be. It has nothing to do with an apology. It has nothing to do with amends, nothing to do with restoration, nothing to do with reconciliation even. To move into a forgiven state doesn't mean you're going to start picking out curtains with that person, right? It's not about the reconciliation. And yes, that culture and those people, they did obliterate this idea and move it back into amends and restoration and all that. But that wasn't the original intent, and that's not what the language is telling us. Because forgiveness also has nothing to do with the offender. It has nothing to do with the perpetrator. It has to do with an interior process, a very interior personal process of releasing the victimhood. I mean, I could ask you all, can you forgive someone who has died? Not going to get an apology from that person. You're not going to get any money back either. But can you forgive them? Can you forgive someone that you'll never see again who has moved away or whatever? Of course you can. Because it's not about them. It's about this interior process of release. And not only that, we do it ourselves or not at all. This is our process. Nobody can do it for us. And even if someone forgives us, or even if someone pays their debt, makes amends, does that mean that we're automatically going to release the serpent in our heart? Have you ever said you're sorry to someone and knew you were not forgiven? You haven't been alive and breathing if you haven't experienced that one. This isn't about that. This is about what we are going to do, what we are willing to do, because it doesn't have anything to do with the other person. We do it ourselves, and no power on heaven or earth can force freedom on a person who has free will. No one can force forgiveness on us if we're not willing, if we don't want it. I can, if you're in prison, I can come and unlock your cell door. Does that make you free? I can unlock your cell door and drag you out onto the nearest street corner and give you bus fare. Does that make you free? Freedom is an interior state. We have to find it ourselves. The cell is just an outward manifestation of this inward attitude of the heart. We can't make anyone free. We can say that we're forgiven. We can say someone else is forgiven, but we can't make them feel it. It is up to them. And what Jesus is saying is that God can't either, or God won't either, because it would violate your free will. It would violate why you're here in the first place, to learn whatever it is that we're supposed to learn here, to move in and make us do something, to coerce us in any way, is to violate love, to invalidate the love. The only way to be forgiven, the only way to realize that we are forgiven, is to release our own anger and resentment and victimhood, allow ourselves to restore. You see, God, if God is love, then God is also forgiveness. God is also deliverance. God is also salvation. God is the state of being of those things. God doesn't do them as a verb. He is them. As we approach him, that's what we get. God is forgiveness 
and he never withholds that forgiveness. He is that forgiveness. We are always free and we are always forgiven in God's eyes. The relationship is never broken from God's point of view, no matter what we've done. God's relationship with us is perfect, which means we are as forgiven, we are as free as we want to be. We are as forgiven and free as we can stand to be. We are as free and forgiven as we are brave enough to accept. Brave? Really? Do you know that it's actually scary, frightening, even terrifying to be free, to be forgiven? Why? Because it means that suddenly we are responsible for ourselves. When you're a victim, you have no choice. And having no choice can be a nice warm blanket because you're not responsible anymore. You can point and deflect all of that responsibility out to somebody else. But to say that you're free, to be one of those pioneers crossing the prairie who can squat anywhere and build a log cabin and have that land absolutely free, wow, wouldn't it be great to do that? Yeah, until the flood comes, until the fire comes, until the Native Americans come and there's no 911 to call, there's no insurance policy, You want to be free? Then you are completely at risk. That's the nature of freedom. It's supposed to be a good trade, but that's the nature of it. And so it's scary to be forgiven. It's scary to be free. Victimhood is. That's something that we hang on to, sometimes for decades, sometimes for life. But it's not the truth. We can choose the freedom and forgiveness of God at any moment. It is there. All we have to do is choose it. Now, I know how Scripture reads. I know that it says that God's not going to forgive unless we forgive. But remember, these are idiomatic expressions from the Hebrew. In the Hebrew mind, ancient Hebrew mind, God is always the actor. God is always the doer. God is sovereign. Nothing happens without God say so. So that everything that happens is because God did it. God approved it. That's the way that they speak. But the truth of the matter is, as we said before, the onus is on us because God has already acted. All his cards are on the table. There is nothing withheld. The rest is up to us. Will we accept the gift that is freely given? God isn't waiting for us to forgive before he forgives us. God is already and always has been perfectly free and perfectly forgiven. But here's the catch. Until we forgive, not just say the words, I forgive you, but until we actually move into a state of being that is leaving our victimhood behind, Only then can we see the oneness that we have, the commonality that we have, even with the perpetrator, even with the one who has hurt us. Only then can we see this common, frail humanity between us that opens up that first trickle of compassion for the other person, the first bit of understanding of why maybe they did what they did, even unconsciously, and you were just in the blast zone. Maybe it wasn't personal. Maybe it wasn't malicious. Who knows? But until you can start to identify with the other person, and that's what this process is all about, identification, 
that door will not open. That first trickle of compassion does not start to flow and become whatever it's going to become in your life. That first breaking down of the wall of victimhood will not happen. And we will never know that we are free. We will never know we are forgiven until we start to forgive in the sense of allowing ourselves through identification with other to feel that reconnection, to feel that restoration. And so the question becomes, are we ready for that much freedom? Are we ready for that much forgiveness? Are we ready for a love that has to love even those who hurt us? to be itself, to be the indiscriminate, degreeless love that it actually is. Until we feel that first trickle of compassion, leaving our hearts to someone that doesn't deserve it, to someone who hasn't gone through the apology, who hasn't gone through the amends process, hasn't paid for their mistakes, we will never know our Father in heaven. We can't. Because that's the way he rolls. That's the kind of love that he has. And we will never know that we are forgiven. Radically forgiven. Let's pray. Father, it's so hard for us to square this circle. So hard for us to see that such seemingly contradictory things can be true at the same time, can present this paradox through which we can live and find you on the other side. We do ask that you would help us with that. Not to do it for us, but to give us the strength, the chutzpah, to take those first few steps in faith, in a direction that may not make any sense yet, full of doubt, uncertainty, insecurity, to see if it has a possibility of being true, that the alien nature of this love and this forgiveness could actually be true. That's what we want to know, Lord. Give us the strength to be able to take those first few steps so we can break through the resistance, break through the catch, and find you waiting for us, open-armed, always, on the other side of any contradiction. Father, we do love you with an imperfect love right now. Help us with your perfect love to find more and more perfection as we go. And never let us forget we can only do any love at all because you loved us first. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.